0: Thank you for listening to You Can Read the Bible's Lesson on the Anointing of Jesus. We've titled this lesson, Wasting Money on Beauty. My name is Matt Carter. So there are three passages in the New Testament where this same scene occurs, Uh, Matthew 26, Mark chapter 14, and John chapter 12. I'll read from Matthew 26, verses 6 through 13 in the ESV version. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So as I said, Mark 14:3 through 9 and John 12, 1 through 8. They retell this same story, the same scene. Uh, they add a few different uh, details to it, but essentially they are the same. Um, I want to point out that you know these passages are very often used uh, these days to derive a, a moral, political, or, or economic lesson. Uh, politicians and pundits they'll they'll quote Jesus um, and and use this passage as an explanation for why less attention. Uh, less effort, fewer resources, should be given to the poor and to the powerless. I want to go over this same passage and, and th- look to see if it has a lot to tell about something else. I think it has a lot to tell us about beauty, forgiveness, and desire. Let's continue our, our uh, way of doing things where we look at biblical narratives on three layers of meaning. Uh, so Matthew is a biblical narrative. So we'll look at the immediate layer, the covenantal layer, and the meta-narrative layer. So the first layer, the immediate layer, very easy to follow in this scene. Um, although Matthew's version of this scene doesn't tell us the name of the woman, the version in John does. And so we know that the name of the woman is, is Mary, and she's the sister of Martha. Uh, this this scene, we also know it took place in Bethany. All three versions say this. And it took place at the house of Simon the leper. We don't really know anything about Simon the leper, really, uh, but it takes place in his house. Uh, we do find from John's account that it seems like Martha uh, might be a servant of Simon the leper's. Um, anyway, in this scene, what actually happens is that... Um, Mary anoints Jesus with some very expensive oil. All right, and so, so what she does is she she takes this flask, alabaster flask, and and basically dumps oil on Jesus. And and you know to us these days, if you poured oil on someone at dinner, it'd be something you'd apologize for. But to them and in, in that time and place, it was not that unusual for uh, you know a, a special guest. Um, some differences in the in the versions in in Matthew and Mark, the oils. You know, poured on Jesus' uh, head. It symbolizes kingship. And John, it's on his feet, symbolizing him being glorified in his death. Um, John also mentions that uh, Mary uses her hair for wiping up. Um, you know, again, this was not unusual in that uh, time and place for servant to to use her hair to, um, you know, for even dinner guests to to use her hair to wipe up uh, excess liquid. Um, but um, I, I think, sort of, most poignantly, uh, the version in Mark. Uh, has Mary's tears included along with this expensive oil in her anointing of Jesus. So, basically this is a profound act of worship by Mary. And Jesus declares this to be beautiful. So let's let's consider some of the reactions that the characters in this story have had. Uh, they're very different. So, first reaction, the disciples uh, basically said, what a waste of money. They were indignant at this waste of financial resources. Uh, they say that the oil could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Uh, the second reaction is Jesus' reaction. He says two things about this. He says first that this was a beautiful thing and then he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 11, you will always have the poor with you. I think we could also maybe add a third reaction, our reaction. Um, we often try to follow Jesus' example and and do so to derive a moral rule. And this rule usually gives us permission to spend our resources on something we find beautiful or desirable, instead of giving those resources to the poor, because those resources, in the end, are not going to end poverty. So let's consider that the logic of that, the, the logic that we use to, to make up that rule. Alright, so... This logic tells us that we should, because poverty is unsolvable for us, we should not spend any more time, effort, or resources than necessary on trying to fix it. At the very least, giving to the poor should not significantly hinder, get in the way of our spending of resources on beautiful or desirable things. Because no matter what we do, um, the poor will always be with us. Jesus said so this logic makes sense to us because it's the same logic that we use for a whole slew of problems that we're unable to solve. Um, and, and our secularist culture trains us to think in, in terms of this logic, and and so trains us to, to to believe that we live in a world of resource scarcity, and that one of our primary problems involves figuring out how to best use those limited resources. So I don't want to leave that in this kind of abstract way, I want to Give you something a little bit more concrete a little bit more tangible so let's consider hurricanes so what is the solution to hurricanes right so just like the poor we will always have hurricanes because we can't stop them from happening now you know some people have suggested that we could solve poverty through things like sterilization and eugenics but you know nobody's yet at least suggested that we can somehow stop the wind from blowing so then you know what do we do about the problem of hurricanes if we can't solve it well of course we respond to hurricanes we we have to respond and we do so in some combination of three ways the first is just to let those you know who are most affected by hurricanes just cope with them the most uh, you know you sort of get what what's coming to you if you're gonna live in a hurricane prone area the second response is uh, sort of like the first, although it's a little bit more crafty. We we use insurance programs to spread the cost and risk of hurricanes around to as many people around the country as possible. Of course, when those of us in non-hurricane-prone areas learn that we're usually unwittingly paying for this hurricane or flood insurance, we understandably don't like it. We don't want to pay for things that we'll never use, especially when we can see lots of better uses for those funds. Uh, But our, 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 our culture, our society's third response is emergency response. When a hurricane hits an area, we send in emergency responders, relief workers, and truckloads of basic supplies. The crisis response mode, which is really what this is, is intended to ensure immediate survival. And then when rebuilding happens, financial resources that do flow usually flow to those who already have resources and abilities. And the hope is that some of those uh, surplus resources will flow down to the poor and to the powerless. So, you know, these three responses to hurricanes parallel our society's dominant responses to poverty. Um, there, there is actually a fourth response to hurricanes, uh, but it re- receives, you know, far less attention effort Written, frankly fewer resources than, than these first three. This is the response that integrates hurricanes into the entire process, starting even before construction begins, right at the planning stage. And in this fourth response, decisions like where buildings can legally be built, how are they to be made, how are they designed, are taken very seriously into consideration. Evacuation routes are planned, built, and maintained long before they are ever used. So this response what it does is it takes very seriously the fact that hurricanes will always be with us and it integrates that reality into the entire way of life in that place you know so wetlands are restored where they're even created to absorb floodwaters weird looking buildings are built utilities are kept underground. People are trained on weather watching and it's habituated as a, as a hobby that everybody practices daily. Everyone's got an emergency plan and survival supplies. Everyone knows what to do and everyone is then able, typically, to safely survive the storm. The question for us then, is there a parallel fourth response to poverty for this uh, fourth response to hurricanes? And uh, the answer is yes. Actually, the, the first 10 verses Of Deuteronomy chapter 15 that so those are the verses that precede Jesus's quoting of verse 11 these 10 verses outline a system of debt forgiveness and common flourishing that would result in everyone being able to survive the storms of life so uh, after commanding this uh, so this is Moses writing Deuteronomy right so after uh, commanding this jubilee of freedom from, from debt, Moses says in verses 4 and 5 of Deuteronomy chapter 15, But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. All right, so why then? In a few verses later, in verse 11, does Moses then say, There will never cease to be poor in the land. Isn't that a contradiction? Well, he says this because just like in the hurricane example, uh, nobody actually does what is commanded, right? So smart urban planners and managers want to keep everybody safe and secure by integrating hurricanes into every facet of civil life. They know how to do it. The problem is that people don't want to do it. It's too onerous and expensive, right? People living on the coast want big wraparound decks and great views. And public officials or public safety officials they don't know how to change what people want right so rather than ugly bunker like weird housing that's hurricane proof people actually want beautiful big windows and wraparound around decks and of course resources are limited you can't have both hurricane proofing and lots of big windows so we go with the big windows right the same logic works with Jubilee and other economic rules in the Torah that integrate poverty and powerlessness into every facet of civic life. The people don't actually follow this law. It's, it's just it's too great a burden to sacrifice this much for something that you don't really want to do. So rather than being open-handed in, in giving to the poor, uh, those people wanted you know very expensive oil in alabaster flasks. Resources are limited, so we go with the alabaster flask of very expensive oil instead of giving to the poor. So we don't follow the law, we sin. You know, There is sin, therefore there is poverty. This leads us to a follow-up question, though, following this same logic. Since we cannot keep the Lord's commands, why should we spend our attention, effort, and resources trying to follow them? For many contemporary Christians, the answer seems to be, that we should not really bother. The burden of even reading through the Lord's commands might itself be too great for us. Plus, Jesus himself, in this Matthew 26 passage, seems to tell us that maybe we should go with the alabaster flask of very expensive oil instead of giving to the poor. Maybe the law in Deuteronomy no longer applies to us. We are already forgiven, after all. Well, Of course, Paul in Romans chapter six, verses one and two gives us a very different answer. Paul says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How could we who died to sin still live in it? Okay, well, how then do we reconcile this apparent conflict between beauty and poverty, given that we ourselves never seem to have enough resources to fully satisfy our desire for either one? If we follow what we read in Matthew 26, you know, about the anointing of Jesus seems okay to opt for beauty, at least so long as that beautiful thing is also um, appropriate. But if we follow what we would have read in Matthew chapter 19 about the rich young ruler, it seems that we should opt for giving to the poor instead. So what do we do? Scripture seems here to be saying two different things, and it seems like we're stuck. Well, one of the ways for making sense of Scripture is to remember who we are. Who are we? Humans desire are desiring beings. We are also profoundly sinful. This means that our sinful nature affects everything about us, including, maybe even especially, affecting our desires. We so often want the wrong things. Our desires, the things that spur us and motivate us, they lead us astray time and time again. So what if our conundrum about scripture is telling us that our heartfelt, sinful desires are not aimed at what they should be and that if they were the conundrum would not be there in other words what if it is not scripture presenting us with this conundrum but us bringing this conundrum to scripture what if what we find beautiful is not actually beautiful what if we believe what we believe about giving to the poor is not actually giving to the poor with an open hand well if that's true what what is beauty then is it not, as you know, we're so often told that it, it's in the eye of the beholder, so how could my take on beauty possibly be wrong or, or even misaligned? Similarly, how could I possibly misunderstand what it means to give to the poor? It, it seems so very simple. Well, let's go back to Deuteronomy. A couple chapters after 15, at, at, at chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. Let's, let's listen to what Moses has to say. Quoting from Verse 14, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive gold and silver. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So, These instructions are given for potential Israelite kings, right? So a king would be a person with enough power and resources to be in a position to choose between beauty and giving to the poor. So what do powerful men like a king desire? Well, apparently they desire to acquire wealth, have horses, boss people around and have many wives, which is basically money, sex, and power. Maybe you can relate. So that is the default uh, sinful state of desire for such a man. And the instruction here is not simply that he should definitely not pursue those desires. Instead, and this may seem odd at first, he should copy and then repetitively reread the law every day of his life. That That's that maybe weird to you. That seems weird to me. Because powerful men, they're always busy. Powerful men have people to copy and people to read for them. Powerful men are not usually scholars and don't want to spend their days rereading the law, right? They do important big things. So, that leads us to this question, why? Why is the instruction to those with power to regularly and repetitively spend time in God's word? Well, the answer is also given here, and it's so that they learn to fear the Lord and not have their hearts lifted up above their brothers. So devotional habits like this shape head learning and heartfelt desires. This habit helps the powerful man to appreciate the beauty of the Lord's plans and the Lord's laws. It also recalibrates his desires from sinful self-serving, acquiring lots of wealth and horses and wives, to a longing for Shalom, in which his heart is not placed above that of his brothers. In other words, this spirit-directed habit transforms the powerful man's understanding of beauty and it fuels his desire for the beauty of shalom. Instead of using other people to help him get more security and status, the king comes to see the beauty of shalom and community with his brothers. Notice that this copying and daily reading of scripture is not done in isolation. The king does at least part of this habitual process, quote, in the presence of the Levitical priests. Even kings need teachers and a community of practice from whom they can imitate and learn. This instruction for people with power is to fully participate in the Lord's process for making men out of monsters. So what about the disciples? The first response from Jesus has nothing to do with money or the poor. This act of anointing is beautiful. Don't trouble Mary about this. She obviously already knows this is beautiful. This is why she does this with tears, no less. Jesus also recognizes this beauty, yet the disciples do not see this beauty even though it is right before them. They don't know what real beauty is even when they see it. So how does a person like one of these disciples come to recognize true beauty like this anointing whenever they see it? By following the transformative discipleship training outlined in Deuteronomy 17. Immerse yourself in scripture. Then, as Jesus points out to the disciples in Matthew 26:12, they will come to recognize the grand story and this beauty when they see it. For the time being, however, in this scene, these characters are not far removed from arguing with each other over who will sit on which side of Jesus. And they are also just about, at this point in the story, to betray and deny Jesus. Well, what about us? What about us? How do we come to recognize the grand meta-narrative and to appreciate real beauty? Surely, surely there's more to this than just this habitual process. Well, remember how you learned to drive a car? You probably had a small driver's manual. The written directions and rules for driving, they're not hard to understand. Yet even though you learned those written directions and passed a test to confirm that you had learned them, you were still not yet a licensed driver. You only really learn how to drive a car after you have practiced driving a car again and again, the more that you drive a car, you know under an ever widening array of conditions, the better a driver you will become. And of course, you also learn how to drive from watching and imitating the people around you. And you know, anybody who's who's observed uh, different parts of the country, knows that drivers from areas that rarely experience snow or ice take a different approach to preparing for and driving through wintry wintry conditions than do drivers from areas with a lot more snow. You learn, at least in part, the importance of giving yourself extra time, having snow tires, and leaving extra room between vehicles from living within a community of drivers that regularly drives through snow through this process and through this community environment we become more sensitive to and aware of the needs of good winter driving similarly repeatedly immersing yourself in scripture and applying that to an ever-widening array of life experiences will help transform you into a more aware disciple Importantly, just as with driving, this habitual scripture reading should happen within a community of believers. Through this process and community environment, we become more sensitive to and aware of the beauty of shalom and the Lord's plan. So remember that scene in the movie It's a Wonderful Life, in which George Bailey is sitting in that very short chair in Mr. Potter's office, and Mr. Potter offers him a job, the job would give George lots and lots of money and opportunity, but it would entail that the Bedford Falls building and loan would be closed down. George, of course, desires the fancy clothes, money and trips to Europe that he would get with Mr. Potter's job. He's longed for those things his whole life. In fact, much of what this movie has presented to us right before this scene about George Bailey's desires and ambitions has been about how frustrated he is striving after those desires. Now he's finally presented with a real opportunity to fulfill those desires. So what does George do? He shakes Mr. Potter's hand and, startled, pauses to think, remember, and imagine. He thinks about his values. He remembers his Bedford Falls neighbors and his father, and he imagines the destruction of Shalom that would result from closing the building and loan. Then he refuses Mr. Potter's job offer. Would a younger George Bailey have done the same? What effect did the day in and day out habitual operations at the building and loan over these years have on George Bailey's character? I think that at least in part, it was through these experiences, day in and day out, that his character grew into the man he was always meant to become. So that now, in Mr. Potter's office, George Bailey has developed the character to recognize and see true beauty true beauty does not ultimately reside in fancy clothes and trips to europe true beauty resides in shalom however small and circums- and circumscribed so his desire to save that beauty of shalom from certain destruction is now much stronger than his desire for fancy clothes and trips to europe here's that scene well what's your point mr potter my point well, what's your point? point is i want to hire you Oh, I want you to manage my affairs, run my properties. George, I'll start you out at $20,000 a year. $20,000 a year? Maybe you wouldn't mind living in the nicest house in town, buying your wife a lot of fine clothes, a couple of business trips to New York a year, maybe once in a while to Europe. You wouldn't mind that, would you? Would I? You're not talking to somebody else around here, are you? You know, You're this, this, is, me. You me? George George this, this is me. You remember me, George Bailey. This is me. You remember me, George Bailey. George Bailey, Bailey? Whose ship has just come me. George in. Bailey. Who ship Provided he has in. enough brains to climb aboard. Goodbye. How about the building and loan? Oh, confounded man, are you afraid of success? I'm offering you a three years contract at $20,000 a year starting today. Is it a deal or isn't it? Well, Mr. Plenner, I, I. I know I ought to jump at the chance, but I. I just. Uh, I, I wonder. If it'd be possible for you to give me 24 hours to think it over... Sure, sure, sure. You go on home and talk about it to your wife. I'd like to do that. Yeah, in the meantime, I'll draw up the papers. All right, sir. Okay, George. Okay, Mr. Potter. Oh, no, 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 wait a minute here. Wait a minute. I don't need 24 hours. I, I don't have to talk to anybody. I know right now, and the answer's no, no! God, it! You sit around here and you spin your little webs and you think the whole world revolves around you and your money. Well, it doesn't, Mr. Potter. In the, in the whole vast configuration of things, I'd say you were nothing but a scurvy little spider. You, and that goes for you, too. for you, So, just like George Bailey, so also did Jesus' disciples like Peter come in time to see the beauty in Mary's anointing of Jesus. Peter came to recognize that his desire to save even his own life mattered less than his desire to faithfully play his part in the Lord's plan. May we take time as disciples of this same Jesus to also develop our characters so that we too come to recognize and desire the beauty of Shalom and the Lord's plan in our lives and in our neighborhoods. Thanks.